when I ultimately caught up with a black male photographer when I was researching the Franklin scandal, and I can prove that he was a black male photographer. I have police reports on him. Um, I said, how does this work? Because I, 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 I was still investigating and I was still trying to get my mind around it. And um, he said, it's like you're on a yacht and it's a beautiful yacht and it's a beautiful day. And you can have anything on this yacht that you want. But if you decide to get off the yacht, the people on the yacht are going to make sure that you drown. And our politicians are on the yacht. And there's zero incentive for them to come out and say that they're being blackmailed. How can I help? How can I be useful in ending needless suffering? Do not be afraid of work that has no end. We have to organize a social movement. We have an opportunity to lead by example versus just talking, hot air. I think the more people in this fight, the more we grow. Eventually you could change. You know, the people are the ones that can make the change. Welcome to Change Agents, an ironclad original presented by Montana Knife Company. Andy's unavailable to record the intros this week for the show, but I'm a producer on the show and wanted to tell you about an incredible conversation Andy recently had with best-selling author and investigative journalist Nick Bryant. Nick is the author of books including The Franklin Scandal and the upcoming book, The Truth About Watergate. He's also the director of the organization Epstein Justice, which seeks justice for the victims of Jeffrey Epstein. Now, you may have read his work in outlets including Vanity Fair, New York Magazine, Gawker, and heard interviews with Nick before. But in this conversation, he goes in areas you probably haven't heard him talk about, particularly on the topic of COINTELPRO and intelligence agencies' ties to Jeffrey Epstein and potentially covering up widespread abuse among politicians and powerful people. This week, as courts are releasing new information about individuals connected to Jeffrey Epstein, we wanted to bring you this timely conversation between investigative journalist Nick Bryant and Andy Stump. I'm just curious, you know, how you kind of found your way to this particular topic, because you were early on in the discovery or uh, revelation of what was going on with him. I'm a freelance writer. I live in New York City. And I was talking to a Rolling Stone editor. And he said, pitch me some stories. And I said, well, what kind of stories do you want? And I'd written about some very dark subjects in the past. And he said, pitch me dark stories, <laughs> the darkest stories you can think of. And, you know, I kind of threw my hands up in the air and I said, Nazis, Satanists. I mean, um, you know. and two then, good candidates. And then that, there was that little glint in his eye when I said Satanists. And he goes, Satanists. So I had a simple plan. I was going to meet some Satanists and I was going to go to a black mass and write an article and uh, get a paycheck. It was going to be, uh, it, as I said, it was a simple plan. But when you're writing, most writers that I know are like this, you're always trolling for subject matter that's tangential to what you're writing about or possibly related to what you're writing about. And I came across a U.S. Customs report about a cult called The Finders. 
and they were headquartered in Washington, D.C. And I wrote a book called The Franklin Scandal, and I took the entire U.S. Customs Report on the finders and put it in the book because it's almost incomprehensible. But anyway, what happened was the the finders were headquartered in Washington, D.C., but they were all over. They were a cult, and uh, there were two finders that were busted in Tallah- a park in Tallahassee, Florida, with six children, ages uh, two to five or two to six, I believe. And some concerned citizens called the police. The police showed up. They took one look at these kids who were ragamuffins, and they arrested the two finders and put the kids in protective custody. And I do have the Tallahassee police report and a physician examining the kids said that two of the kids had been sexually abused or showed signs of sexual abuse. And these two finders were arraigned on a number of child abuse charges. And there was child pornography in the van. So U.S. Customs was called in. U.S. Customs generally handles uh, child pornography investigations. And the Washington, D.C. police contacted the Tallahassee police and said that they'd been looking into the finders for quite some time about an unsolved homicide and also abusive children. So the D.C. police and the U.S. Customs got a search warrant on the finders warehouse in Washington, D.C. And they, what they came across was some very shocking stuff, uh, including child pornography. And there was also instructions for how the finders would infiltrate families as babysitters and uh, get intelligence on families. Um, So at the end of the report, the uh, U.S. Customs uh, agent that wrote the report was Ramon Martinez. And at the end of the report, he, he goes to the to the D.C. Police Department, and he's told that the D.C. police have disengaged and because the finders have become a CIA internal matter, and the U.S. Customs would ultimately be disengaged, and so would the FBI. And I looked at that document, and I thought, there is something I'm missing in life. This document does not make any sense to me whatsoever. Why would the CIA come to the rescue of some very strange people in a cult that were doing allegedly extremely negative things to children? And I started digging into it and digging into it, and I found another case that was somewhat like it in Omaha, Nebraska, and I ultimately spent seven years on that, um, investigating that case. And I wrote The Franklin Scandal, a story of power brokers, child abuse, and betrayal. And it was connected to the the two pimps in that network. And it was very, it was, it's almost like a carbon copy of the Epstein network. Um, the two pimps in that network were Lawrence E. King and Craig Spence. King was out of Omaha. Spence was in Washington, D.C., and Spence King was would get kids from all over, including Boys Town, the esteemed orphanage on the outskirts of Omaha. He plundered Boys Town quite heavily, but he would get lots of kids, and uh, they would fly them to Washington D.C. 
and there would be pedophilic orgies in Craig Spence's home, and and both King and Spence were pedophiles. And Spence, uh, Epstein, we that we know of had hidden cameras in three of his homes, and probably in New Mexico too. Um, I can get into that a little bit later. So Spence, Spence's house was wired for audiovisual blackmail, and um, Spence was a CIA asset, and they ran this network for Spencer King ran this network for about 10 years, 10 to 12 years. It was much bigger than Epstein's network. It produced a lot of child pornography, um, but it was ultimately covered up by, by state and federal authorities. And I don't know if uh, your viewers are familiar with how grand juries work, but a special prosecutor is chosen to present evidence and call witnesses witnesses to for grand jurors and grand jurors are just citizens that have shown up for jury duty and they've been funneled into a grand jury grand jury elicits like the gods of jurisprudence have spoken but basically it's just citizens that have shown up for jury duty that have been uh funneled to a grand jury and then a special prosecutor presents them with evidence it's not prosecutorial it's whatever the special prosecutor shows that the grand jurors is what they're ultimately going to make their decisions on and indict, which is to formally criminally accuse someone. So in Nebraska, there were two grand juries that said that this network did not entail any child abuse whatsoever. And I managed to acquire the sealed grand jury documentation exhibits and testimony and and I really, in my book, The Franklin Scandal, I bring the reader into a grand jury, which is illegal. I was not supposed to be able to, I, I was not supposed to have that material. And I certainly wasn't supposed to publish it, but I felt like what, what was covered up was just so evil that I was, I was willing to take my chances with it. So I really demonstrated that that network had been covered up by law enforcement. Um, in Nebraska, it was primarily the FBI, but also state law enforcement participated. And that grand jury actually indicted two kids that would not recant their accounts of abuse. And one of the kids was Alicia Owen, and she was also, she wouldn't recant her abuse. She was 21 years old and she'd been trafficked as an adolescent. And she wouldn't recant her abuse in front of a federal grand jury. So she was ultimately looking at uh, 200 years in prison because she wouldn't recant her abuse and she still refused to recant her abuse. And then one of the boys who wouldn't recant his abuse, uh, accounts of his abuse was looking at 60 years in prison. And to sanctify that grand jury, they had to put Alicia Owen away. And I, the majority of the book is her trial. And I really show just how per perfidious her trial was. And she was a 21-year-old girl um, from a working-class family that had been trafficked out as an adolescent. And it was a real kangaroo court that convicted her. And uh, the, the, that trial was unbelievably corrupt. But anyway, she was sentenced. To, uh, she was a kid. She was sentenced between 9 and 15 years in prison for perjury. And she had to do two years in solitary confinement. And I found that I, the injustices were just so seismic in that case that, that I found that, that I had to write about. 
So that book was published in 2009. And I started digging into this world in 2002. And Epstein came across my radar, radar in about 2011. And I ultimately went down to Florida in 2012 and started digging into Epstein. And that's when I acquired his black book. And I brought the black book back to New York City and I tried to get publishers to publish it and let me write an article about it. And it took me three years before I could get someone to, to publish it and, and let me write articles about it. It was, uh, and that was Gawker. Um, which has unfortunately been sued into oblivion at this point. But it's interesting. There was a grand jury in Florida that found that Epstein hadn't molested a single child. And the uh, Palm Beach Police Department, which initiated the investigation into Jeffrey Epstein, had five victims, underage victims, that they had statements from. And then they had people that corroborated the victims. But they knew of 17 more victims. So the, the uh, Florida law enforcement and the judiciary knew of 23 Epstein victims at that point, but that grand jury only called one Epstein victim. And that special prosecutor, Barry Kushner, skewered her. So that grand jury didn't find Epstein guilty of a single count of child abuse. And the corruption has just cascaded since then. What you're describing to, I would consider myself to be a sane person, is absolutely mind-bending. It's, uh, it's mind-bending, and uh, but what's, what's truly unfortunate is that you've got the federal government covering up child trafficking, both in the uh, Franklin scandal and also in the Epstein scandal. The U.S. attorney for the Southern District of Florida was Alexandra Acosta, and that's who was ostensibly supposed to uh, prosecute Epstein. He had a list of 32 Epstein victims. I, I have that list. And he did not charge Jeffrey Epstein with one count of child abuse. And after he had been U.S. attorney, he was nominated to be Trump's labor secretary and he was being vetted by the Trump administration. And then I asked him, why didn't you go after Epstein? And he said, I was told that Epstein was intelligence and that it was above my pay grade and to leave it alone. So you have a, in the Epstein case, you have a U.S. attorney standing down from prosecuting child abuse when he has a list of, of 32 victims. Now, here's where it gets really mind-boggling. There's only, constitutionally, there's only two people in the government that can tell a U.S. attorney to stand down. One is the president and one is the attorney general. That, can, that message can be delivered by a minion of the president mm -hmm. or the attorney general, but only one of two people can tell a U.S. attorney to stand down. So that's the kind of power that was deployed to make sure that Jeffrey Epstein wasn't indicted by the feds. And Alexander Acosta has been questioned about what he had said to the Trump administration, um, vetting him about um, that, that Epstein was, that he'd been told that Epstein was intelligence, and he's never denied that at all. Do you remember the first time you 
came across Epstein's name in your research when you were looking into these type of behaviors? It was about 2011, I believe. And um, I'd spent seven years investigating writing the Franklin scandal. And I went as deep into a child trafficking network as someone can go. I mean, I got to to one of the blackmail photographers um, and I got to other people that were definitely privy to the intelligence connection and the hidden cameras. And and then I found a number of victims. I had a, that grand jury that covered up the abuse in Omaha, Nebraska, that indicted those two kids. Um, they had a list of 60 victims and I've got all the grand jury documentation. So I had a list of those 60 victims. And there were a lot more victims, but there was a state investigator that had found 60 victims. And my job was to find those victims. And unfortunately, and we see this with the Epstein case too. Um, unfortunately, a lot of those kids came from very dysfunctional backgrounds. Yeah. And then they were repeatedly molested and the carrot was drugs. Um, and if they performed, they were given drugs. And then at a certain point, they would be expunged. And we saw this with the Net Epstein Network, too. At a certain point, they would be expunged because they would use, lose their youthful marketability. And then what you have is a severely dysfunctional young adult that oftentimes goes on to commit crimes so they can feed their addiction and thereby end up in prison or end up as felons or in some way compromise their own cre credibility. So it's almost a perfect system that you take these kids and really damage them. And then they will eventually go on to compromise their own credibility. Well, I would imagine in your research that you came across a variety of names. What was it about Epstein that drew your attention and more scrutiny? The cover up with the grand jury. That was a telltale sign. Um, I, I, I've written a lot about children's issues. I, I started writing about children's issues in 1990. I mean, I've written about a lot of different things. I've had a, free, uh, a freelance writing career that spanned like 30 years, but, I, um, but I've written a, a lot about children's issues. And, and actually I wrote a book about lower socio, I co-authored a book about lower socioeconomic children that was published in 1995. So I'm sensitive to children's issues. And um, and then once I saw what was happening in the Franklin scandal where these kids were getting trafficked, and then I came across other people that came to me. When you write a book like that, you become kind of like a lightning rod. And yeah. a number of people had come to me and talked about being trafficked and could I investigate. And I'm just one guy. I really you know, felt bad that I, I couldn't investigate all the allegations that came to me. But the thing that stuck out about Epstein was I felt that there were legal, major legal aberrations that occurred in Florida. And I can remember going down there and I, I, I'd spent seven years on the Franklin scandal and I didn't really want to investigate another network. I really didn't. Um, but at that point, the media was just depicting Epstein as a lone pedophile. But then when I managed to acquire his black book, there's 
scores of victims in the black book as well as power brokers. And I started calling victims. And um, they were telling me about being flown around and also about the island. And I realized he was running a network, um, a, a, a very big network. And as disheartening as it was, and that, and I knew that I, this was going to be very difficult for me because the Franklin scandal had been very difficult for me and people didn't want to listen to me. And I knew that Epstein was going to be difficult. But on my first trip to, uh, to uh, Florida, I acquired the Black Book and I thought, well, you know, here is the Black Book. Um, publishers are going to take note of this. I'm not, I'm not just pitching them conjecture. I've got Epstein's black book that has scores of uh, victims as well as a lot of power brokers. And people, I, li I live in the uh, Mecca of publishing New York City and no one in New York City wanted to touch it until Gawkard. And it took me three years to get it published. But when I started to call those victims, I knew that I was dealing with another large network. And actually the, 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 Network in the Franklin scandal, it was a, I think it was a larger network than Epstein's, but it had been around for, as I said, 10 to 12 years. Whereas mm -hmm. I think Epstein had trafficked children for about 25 years. It wasn't as big, it was big, but it wasn't as big as the Franklin network, but it was around at least twice as long as uh, the Franklin network. Ladies and gentlemen, I could not be more fired up to introduce the presenting sponsor for season two of Change Agents, Montana Knife Company, founded by somebody that I feel very fortunate to call a personal friend, Master Bladesmith, Josh Smith. Not only a Master Bladesmith, but the youngest Master Bladesmith and one of the most experienced in the world. Montana Knife Company blades are some of the finest that I've ever been able to get my hands on. They are the sharpest knife out of the box and they're some of the easiest to resharpen when you dull the blade. I take them everywhere that I go. I have them in every vehicle that I own and every backpack that I ever take into the backcountry. Specifically, my favorite blade of theirs is the Speedgoat. It's lightweight, but so incredibly capable. I never leave home without it. If you're familiar with Montana Knife Company, you know it is often very difficult to get one of their blades because they sell out within minutes of being released. What you should be able to find in stock are the Blackfoot 2.0, Speedgoat, or a Stonewall Skinner. And if you use the code CHANGEAGENTS10, that's going to net you 10% off of your first order. Again, my personal favorite blade is the Speedgoat. If they have them in stock right now, don't mess around. Put it in your cart and complete the checkout. Montana Knife Company, they build working knives for working people. And like I said at the beginning, I could not be more proud to collaborate with them on Change Agents Season 2. There's a lot of things I like about the Mountain Tough program, but I think primarily what I enjoy is they focus on mental toughness in addition to just the physical toughness. Everything they do is grounded in one purpose, life transformations and being strong between the years in the mind. And there's also a community of 15,000 plus Mountain Tough athletes. So the community is strong, they're supportive, and they're gonna help keep you accountable. So you can train anywhere, you can stream anywhere. You can access guided training and on-demand workouts right from your phone, your tablet, or TV or computer, whatever you're into. And everything you need is in one spot. 
the Mountain Tough subscription gets you access to all the Mountain Tough programs, new programs, and bonus content. And they have programs for everyone. Those who hit the gym and heavy weights, those who like to work out at home with no gear or minimal gear, and everything in between. Mountain Tough has been the trusted training by the dedicated for years now, including U.S. military special forces and dedicated backcountry hunters. There is no excuse for you to not start the day. With Mountain Tough, you can conquer your goals with the ideal program for your lifestyle and schedule. Train with equipment or just your body weight on your phone, tablet, TV, or web browser. Most importantly, they will help you train your mindset so you are always ready for anything that life throws away. Mountain Tough subscribers get full access to world-class home and gym programs, groundbreaking mental toughness training, self-improvement, prehab and rehab, biomechanical form coaching, stretching and mobility flows, nutrition guidance, challenge workouts, and the global Mountain Tough community. Mountain Tough is offering Change Agents listeners an incredible offer. You're going to get 40% off on the all-new Mountain Tough Plus annual subscription with the code CHANGEAGENTS. Go to mtntough.com and enter the code CHANGEAGENTS to receive 40% off, a savings of about $100 on your Mountain Tough Plus annual subscription. That is MTN, Mike Tango November Tough.com and enter the code CHANGEAGENTS to save 40%. That is less than 50 cents per day for the best in-class physical and mental training. Where did he come from and how was he able to achieve this position? I don't want to use the term power broker, but this person who was so interconnected with people at the highest level of politics in this country. That's difficult. Epstein was a college dropout from a blue collar family in Coney Island, New York. Um, and what we see in the Franklin scandal, I was talking about those two pimps, Lawrence E. King and Craig Spence, they both came from blue collar families. And both of them were in Southeast Asia during the Vietnam War. And King was in Thailand and he was given a top security clearance and King, uh, and Spence was an ABC reporter. And I'm extrapolating this, but I believe that both of them got busted molesting boys when they were in Southeast Asia. And they were turned because as soon as they came back to the United States, their careers were just on an, an upward trajectory. Um, so, and we see that with Epstein. He comes from this humble origin, and then he's a teacher at Dalton, um, which is maybe the most prestigious high school in, uh, in the United States of America, and he's not even a college graduate. So... Epstein, we don't really know when Epstein was turned, but I think that the way that his career just shot up after he left Dalton uh, is, is an indication um, that at some point he was turned. And in 1987, Les Wexner, whose name is also circled in the Black Book, um, who is a billionaire, he's head of uh, L Brands, which was Victoria's Secret and Tommy Hilfiger and a, no a number of other uh, clothing lines. Um, he was worth, uh, at that point, about $4 billion. And in 1987, he gave Epstein the keys to his kingdom. He gave Epstein power of attorney over his entire empire. 
And at that point in 1987, you can see Epstein just, his star just rises and rises and rises. Why did Les Wexner, one of the richest men in the world, give Epstein the keys to his kingdom? According to Vanity Fair, um, Les Wexner gave Jeffrey Epstein the keys to his kingdom because he was lonely. That's what Vanity Fair wants us to believe. Lonely, okay. He was lonely, yeah. That's that's I what mean, Vanity Fair says. Or maybe it was the New York Times. It was either the New York Times or Vanity Fair that said that, yeah, Les, Les, was, Les was lonely, and he decided to give Jeffrey Epstein power of attorney over his empire because he was, he was lonely. I mean, that is an answer. I'm not sure if it's an answer that explains his behavior. <laughs> but but that's but that's the kind of bullshit that the media has been selling us about Epstein. That's well, why that's why Americans are perplexed about Epstein. They know that something went on. Yeah. And I mean, well, so your book, you know, about the black book came out in 2015. Yes. And it seems like, you know, mainstream mainstream media initially wanted nothing to do with it. He wasn't even arrested until 2019. Well, even before he was arrested in 2008 initially. I was going to say, I think it, I have it in my notes is 2006 for sex crimes against a minor in Florida. That's that's when uh, the initial investigation started with uh, with the Palm Beach Police Department. Yeah. It, you know, and it, it, my point is that it's not as if this was unknown. I, as a, again, somebody considers myself to be a reasonable person, I don't understand with the volume of data and the history of behavior with this individual, why this was not frontline news or headline news across the United States. Well, it, it made it into the mainstream media prolifically. Every mainstream media outlet in this country has talked about the black book. Everyone. Yeah. Um, but none of them have really talked about the black book that the way that the black book should be talked about. And only one publication has given me credit for putting the black book on the Internet. Um, you would think that when this stuff started to come out about Epstein and people realized what a resource the black book was, um, that my phone would be ringing off the hook, but there were no calls. Vanity Fair called me. That was the only uh, publication that called me. Well, it would seem as if they probably, many of those organizations likely reported on it because they felt like they had to, and maybe to the minimum amount, as opposed to feeling like they wanted to and really diving into what it could mean for the power structure that exists in the United States. Yeah, uh, people, uh, Americans are are very naive about their political system, and it's truly unfortunate. I've been looking at, I, and I wrote another book. I teamed up with uh, someone who ran a gay escort service in Washington, D.C., and we wrote a book called Confessions of a D.C. Madam, The Politics of Sex, Lies, and Blackmail. And the uh, in intelligence would use his gay escorts to uh, compromise closeted uh, politicians. So I've been looking at this for quite some time. And Americans uh, have a collective naivete about their political system. They do not think 
that their politicians are being blackmailed, which is truly unfortunate because I've come to believe that the checks and balances within our government is blackmail. Our politicians, when you get to the national level, they're either blackmailed and or they were willing to make Faustian packs. And when I ultimately caught up with a blackmail photographer when I was researching the Franklin scandal, and I can prove that he was a blackmail photographer, I have police reports on him. Um, I said, how does this work? Because I, 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 I was still investigating and I was still trying to get my mind around it. And um, he said, it's like you're on a yacht and it's a beautiful yacht and it's a beautiful day. And you can have anything on this yacht that you want. But if you decide to get off the yacht, the people on the yacht are going to make sure that you drop. And our politicians are on the yacht and there's zero incentive for them to come out and say that they're being blackmailed. Good morning, everybody. As you know, Change Agents is an Ironclad original, but what you may not know is that for over a decade, Ironclad has worked with brands and individuals to create world-class films, series, podcasts, and ad campaigns. In fact, I've been working with Ironclad for the past few years. I was introduced to them on a project through the Navy SEAL Foundation. I've worked with them uh, on a variety of projects, even up here in Montana, long before they proposed the idea of Change Agents to me. They're the best in their field. And I say that because there are plenty of people out there looking for the best, looking for the cream of the crop, looking for the top of the triangle. And if you're looking for that, you need to look no further than Ironclad. If you ever need media by way of film, a series, podcasts, or ad campaigns, they have you covered. You can reach out today and follow them anywhere at This Is Ironclad, the ampersand and then this is Ironclad, or visit them online, thisisironclad.com. Again, www.thisisironclad.com. Can you unpack their relationship and, and kind of how they were trafficking, how they would find people and how they would traffic the victims, the, the actual mechanics of what it is they were doing? It's interesting. Uh, Maxwell's father, Robert Maxwell, was a media baron, but he was also a spy for the U.S., uh, the MI6, and also the Mossad. And Glenn Maxwell was his favorite child. He had, I, I, I believe there were eight children in that family. Now, I've been told that Maxwell... Robert Maxwell brought Ghislaine and Jeffrey together um, hmm. and he felt that it would be a, a wonderful match. Um, the media says that uh, what happened with Robert Maxwell was he plundered the retirement accounts of the workers in, 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 the, in the various media that he owned. And he was ultimately busted for it. And I've been told that he had tried to blackmail the Mossad into giving him the money, um, but he ended up taking a leap from his yacht, and uh, that that's how he died. So the media says that the media um, says that uh, Maxwell was 
was feeling despondent because of her father's death and her father's criminality. And she moved to New York City. And there she met Jeffrey Epstein. And Jeffrey Epstein wanted her social connections and Ghislaine Maxwell wanted his money. And it was a marriage made in heaven. I do not necessarily believe the media account, um, but I'm not exactly what what to believe about how they met either. Um, but what happened was Maxwell set up this machine and she recruited, there were a number of procurers and they recruited um, girls. I mean, that was, that was a huge machine that, that Maxwell set up that was solely designed to procure underage girls. And there were a number of procurers. The New York Times, in addition to naming Ghislaine Maxwell, named uh, five or six other procurers. And the amazing thing about the Maxwell trial is she was indicted on, on one count of child trafficking. Child trafficking carries a 15-year-to-life sentence. And she was indicted on one count. And, and the other procurers that we know about, that the New York Times wrote about, um, they weren't even indicted. <clears throat> now, if we were really seeking justice in the Epstein case, what would happen was we would take the procurers, like the FBI or the uh, Department of Justice dismantled the mafia. We would indict those procurers on multiple counts of child trafficking where they'd be looking at 10 or 15 or 20 years in prison because they certainly trafficked a lot of girls. And then they would roll over on the perps. If, if, if there was actual justice going on here, um, that's what would happen. But yeah, Maxwell set up this machine um, and she conscripted other procurers and they uh, conscripted other procurers and it was like a, a huge vacuum cleaner um, to find Jeffrey Epstein and his perverted pals, underage girls. How, I mean, it's kind of a gross way to think about it, but if you had to put a ratio between Jeffrey and Jelaine, is it Jislaine or Jelaine? Jelaine. Jelaine. Hmm. What would you put the ratio as far as the, the, the power of that network, the control of the network? Was it 50-50? Was Epstein more in charge of connecting the people that she found with those that were looking for that particular type of whatever you want to call it? Maxwell was his uh, number one lieutenant. Okay. Basically. So do you think he was largely pulling the strings as far as the direction that they were trying to go, or do you think they did it more collaboratively? Well, Maxwell oversaw the machine mm -hmm. and Epstein provided these girls to the power brokers that he provided them to. And then Maxwell took part in that too. I mean, she was also complicit, but it was Epstein that was primarily pandering these girls to the to the power brokers. So he created the 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 body, and she fulfilled the role of the skeleton to make sure that it had the legs. Yes. Yeah. What are your thoughts on the? Uh, I mean, probably the most recognizable thing I think you know, the average person on the street would recognize from the Epstein story is the island. What are your thoughts on? The island, the flight logs, and even I had uh, heard recently, I might be butchering this a little bit, but didn't recently a senator block the subpoena for the flight logs to the island? 
Yes. Um, well, the island is where a lot of that. I mean, the, the, the island was lawless. Uh, mm -hmm. Epstein could do whatever he wanted at that island. Um, he 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 was the president of that island, essentially. Um, there was Marsha Blackburn, a uh, Republican senator, sought uh, the the flight logs of Jeffrey Epstein. Now, I've got flight logs. I've got flight logs from 1998 to 2006. And they certainly demonstrate a lot of names. But Marsha Blackburn asked for, uh, wanted to subpoena the flight logs. But what happened there was the Democrats were going after the Supreme Court justices, especially Clarence Thomas for his uh, moral turpitude. And Blackburn was actually, it was kind of a quid pro quo, where uh, uh, if you're going to go after these conservative justices, I'm going to subpoena uh, these flight logs. So basically what they were doing was, and, and ultimately the Senate Judiciary Committee, which was controlled by the Democrats, um, knocked down the subpoena, quashed the subpoena. Um, but it's it's politicizing child abuse. I mean, yeah. she should have been uh, asking to subpoena those flight logs because it was the right thing to do, not because... Uh, the Democrats were going after a pervert like Clarence Thomas, who is very you, much a pervert and most likely compromised. Do you believe that Epstein, his, I'm trying to think of the correct word to, I don't want to, I guess, organization, Epstein's influence, does it touch equally both sides of the political aisle? Mostly, I would say the Democrats, but the Franklin scandal the book that I wrote about the trafficking network, um, it was primarily little boys that were pandered to Republicans and Epstein mm -hmm. was pandering little girls to Democrats. That seems unfortunately to be the partisan divide amongst our politicians. So another thing with the island and a lot of the other properties was the hidden cameras. Yes. And obviously those cameras were there for recording and I'm sure a multi-hour conversation could go. Is it for, was it for the personal use of the people involved in those acts? Was it for blackmail? Was it for both of those things? Everything in between. Where do you think those recordings are now is the more interesting question to me. Well, the FBI, when uh, Epstein was arrested um, this last time, the FBI drilled his uh, safe and there were, depending upon the source, hundreds to thousands of DVDs. And some of them had names like little redacted plus redacted. So there were probably compromise. Uh, there was probably a lot of compromise footage there and probably child pornography, too. So the FBI impounded everything and it's gone into a black hole. I did a Freedom of Information Act request. I did not ask for the DVDs. I asked for reports on the DVDs. And as soon as Epstein killed himself, the federal government declared that the case was closed. So I felt, well, if the case is closed, I can you know, submit these Freedom of Information Act requests. So I submitted my Freedom of Information Act requests, and I was told that the case was ongoing. <laughs> Interesting. So, so <laughs> as Americans, we're going to have to press for 
that documentation to be revealed. We cannot let our government cover up child trafficking. We, I mean, it's 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 a a line in the sand that 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 as Americans we have to make sure that the government doesn't cross. Now, would you you trust an individual or a group that was trafficking children? No. No one would trust an individual yeah. or a group that was trafficking children. So how can we have a baseline trust of our government if it's covering up crimes as heinous as trafficking children, which it certainly is in the Epstein case? Well, and that brings me to some of the work that you just put out, uh, the cleanup crew, where yes. you talk about your con conclusion. And I would love for you to explain to me how you got to this point where it was a COINTELPRO, a counterintelligence program. How did you come to this conclusion? Well, David Boys, uh, he is a big shot attorney. He's one of the most powerful attorneys in 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 the world, and he represents a number of uh, the Epstein victims. And David Boys has a very very negative track record. He uses uh, Black Cube. Black Cube is a uh, is a is a uh, company of retired Mossad mercenaries that do dirty deeds, dirt. Uh, they they perform whatever dirty needs that need to be done, and uh, David Boys, prior to representing Epstein victims, he had hired Black Cube to go after uh, to go after Rose McGowan, who was he was representing Harvey Weinstein. And he hired Black Cube to go after Rose McGowan, and Rose and and Black Cube uh, actually managed to wiggle into her life under uh, under assumed names and assumed identities. And um, and boys also used uh, Black Cube against the New York Times when they were going to write an expose about um, that Harvey Weinstein was an inveterate rapist. And uh, Elizabeth Holmes, who uh, was the Theranos, Theranos, the, the major grifter, he also used Black Cube to um, to quash negative information about Elizabeth Holmes, and and actually Boys was on the board. So David Boys likes to use Black Cube. He likes to destroy people, and and. When he was representing those victims, I had a strange feeling about it. And I just felt like something wasn't right there. So I started digging into um, to David Boyce, and he conscripted uh, an attorney named Stan Pottinger to help him with the litigation. Now, Stan Pottinger was an assistant U.S. attorney general in the uh, 60s and 70s. And if you needed a cover-up, Stan Pottinger was your man. I, I call Stan Pottinger the Forrest Gump of cover-ups because wherever there's a major <laughs> cover-up that's going on uh, in the in the in the government during his time as as an assistant attorney general, Stan Pottinger is there. Um, he covered up with Kent State those uh, four college students that got murdered. Stan Pottinger um, impaneled a grand jury to, to, to look at the Kent State uh, murders. And the grand jury declared that, um, that there was no conspiracy 
um, that the uh, the soldiers fired on the college students kind of impromptly. But a recording surfaced of one of the uh, the the uh, soldiers commanders t telling them to fire at the college students. And Pottinger had that tape of the soldiers being ordered to fire on the students. And yet he did not present it to the grand jurors in that grand jury that he impaneled. And uh, because on the tape, a voice is heard saying, get set, point, fire. Um, COINTELPRO was something else that Stan Pottinger covered up. Um, it was the FBI's, uh, I, I'll give you a, uh, a summation of COINTELPRO um, by, by the church hearings that, were, that was looking into government malfeasance in, uh, in the, in the mid-70s. And this is what the church hearings came to. COINTELPRO was spying on Americans and doing all kinds of things that, uh, that were highly illegal. And this is what the church hearing had to say. The government operating primarily through secret informants, but also using other intrusive techniques, such as wiretaps, microphone bugs, surreptitious mail opening, and break-ins has swept in vast amounts of information about the personal views, lives, and associations of American citizens. Groups and individuals have been harassed and disrupted because of their political views and their lifestyles. Investigations have been based on vague standards whose breath made excessive collection inevitable. Unsavory and vicious tactics, tactics have been employed, including anonymous attempts to break up marriages, disrupt meetings, ostracize persons from their professions, and provoke target groups into rivalries that might result in deaths. So that was COINTELPRO. And Stan the Man Pottinger, the Forrest Gump of cover-ups, he was in charge of investigating COINTELPRO. And, and here's what he said about uh, COINTELPRO to uh, the uh, attorney general. The Civil Rights Division found no basis for making criminal charges against particular individuals or involving particular incidents. Although some of the acts reviewed appeared to amount to technical violations, the division concluded that without more information, prosecutive action would not be justified under its normal criteria. So he is saying that there wasn't enough information, but the church hearings gleaned 20,000 pages of FBI documents, took depositions from numerous FBI agents and interviewed several COINTELPRO targets. So COINTELPRO was another cover-up of uh, Stanley Blinger. And when we get into uh, the, the, the FBI went after the, Black Panthers and the American Indian Movement really, really hard. And uh, there was a 2019 documentary that aired on PBS. It's called From Wounded Knee to Standing Rock, A Reporter's Journey. And it, it interviewed uh, Tom Parker, a retired FBI agent who worked for COINTELPRO. And he said that the FBI had helped to fracture the American Indian Movement. And he said, we wanted them to kill each other as we were in a war against AIM. <clears throat> and one of the tragic victims of COINTELPRO was uh, Emery Aquish. She was a Mi'kmaq Indian and a member of AIM. And uh, two members of AIM murdered her in December of 1975 after the FBI had disseminated rumors that she was a government informant. So ultimately, AIM took over Wounded Knee. Uh, and there was a, a Native American massacre at Wounded Knee in, um, 
1890, and AIM ultimately took over that village. And uh, Pottinger was right on the scene there, and uh, he was he was the uh, quote unquote negotiator. Um, and the uh, the Department of Justice under Pottinger's uh, supervision brought a case against the 135 Native Americans that had occupied Wounded Knee, but they focused on Banks and Russell Banks and Dennis Means, who were head of the uh, American Indian Movement and also um, the leaders of, of uh, the, the town's takeover. And uh, so Pottinger and the Justice Department planned to imprison Banks and Means for decades. But uh, the trial judge discovered that the FBI had altered or suppressed key documents, committed illegal electronic surveillance, and had probably persuaded law enforcement officials in River Falls, Wisconsin, to drop rape and sodomy charges against the government star witness. The judge also stated that the special agent in charge of the Minnesota Division of the FBI, which covers three states, including South Dakota, where Wounded Knee is, had purged himself on the stand, and he dismissed all charges against banks and means. So uh, Pondra wasn't very successful in um, covering that up. Um, he played an integral role. There was a, a lot of information that came out about the Martin Luther King assassination that showed that James Earl Ray um, probably wasn't the assassin. And actually, the King family believed that uh, James Earl Ray wasn't the assassin. And uh, Pottinger launched an investigation and found that James, James Earl Ray was the, uh, was the, was the lone nut. Um, and it just goes on and on. This is kind of an interesting um, uh, from the New York Times uh, reported on uh, CI director Helms ordered the break-in into a photography studio that was owned by a former CIA employee. Hanger oversaw the case and determined that Helms was innocent of civil rights violations. And this is, we're quoting Stan Ponger now. I had lead responsibility in the case for a couple of months, said Ponger. We have spared no resources, no time, and no effort. So he found that Helms did not commit any civil rights violations by having the CI break into the uh, business of an American citizen. But anyway, so uh, Richard Helms had been called before the Church Commission, which I previously uh, mentioned, and he told a lot of lies. And in that article that I'm quoting, Ponger says, uh, well, Helms' congressional testimony is under review for possible charges. So what Helms uh, Helms told a lot of lies before the Senate. Uh, he testified to Congress that the CIA had not funneled money to the opponents of Chilean President Salvador, Salvador Allende, but the church hearings discovered that CIA had funneled $8 million to foes of Allende. Helms testified to Congress that the CIA not, had not conducted domestic surveillance, but nearly a quarter of a million of first-class letter, first letters were opened and photographed in the United States by the CIA during this period. And the CIA's Operation Chaos indexed 300,000 individuals in a CIA computer system and created 7,200 American files on 7,200 Americans and 100 domestic groups. And of course, the IRS developed files on 11,000 individuals and groups. Now, Stan Ponger was going to get to the bottom of this because Richard Helms, the head of the CIA, had lied before Congress. I mean, that's pretty pretty substantial to lie before Congress. I mean, people get multiple years. So this is what uh, Helms got because uh, Ponger was so assiduous in executing his uh, his duties. 
Helms pled guilty. Helms pled no contest to two misdemeanors. He was fined $2,000 and given a two-year suspended sentence. So when I'm calling Stan Ponger the Forrest Gump of cover-ups, this is what he does. He covers things up for the government. And there are other cover-ups that I could get into, but I won't. Um, and then when he was brought aboard by David Boyes to help with the litigation, then I knew I, I, I really smelled the rat because uh, Ponger's definitely a, a, a CIA asset. Um, I don't know if your viewers are familiar with the October surprise, but what happened there was uh, the Ayatollah Khomeini took over Iran and, and deposed the Shah, who, who was our ally. And he, the Iranians uh, collected uh, a number of American hostages, like 60 of them. And the Reagan administration made a deal with the Iranians um, to hold on to the hostages until Reagan was elected. And then um, and, and then the, uh, the, the government under the auspices of the CIA would sell them arms for their battle against Iraq because uh, Iran and Iraq were engaged in a, in, a, in a war at that point. We were also selling arms to um, to Iraq. But uh, Ponger was actually busted putting together an arms deal for the October surprise. And um, he was uh, he was the lawyer for these uh, two brothers that were importing, exporting arms. And, and he was busted on a tape telling them, instructing them how to uh, how to import arms and not get caught doing it. And uh, this is. Uh, a paragon and who was in charge of this investigation was Rudolph Giuliani, and he's a paragon of integrity. And this is what Giuliani had to say. The investigation of Mr. Ponger is still continuing, said U.S. Attorney Rudolph Giuliani. It would be unfair to make a judgment at this point. So what happened? Rudolph Giuliani and the Department of Justice lost the tapes that had Ponger making these arms deals. So... He was acquitted of making arms deals and and he was selling arms or, or aiding and abetting the selling of arms to an enemy state. So it would have been treason. I mean, he would have been uh, if if all things were equal, he would have been arraigned for treason. So Stan Ponger is a bad actor. And when he got involved with boys and representing these girls, I knew that something was really bad um, that and, and, and Stan Ponger is is a definitely a CIA asset. And it only makes sense that the government would use a CIA op to cover up a CIA op or an intelligence op to cover up an intelligence op. And, and that's what we're seeing with, uh, with uh, these Epstein victims and their attorneys. And the Epstein victims, uh, the Epstein victims compensation fund is a superlative tool for covering up um, crimes against uh, the, the crimes committed by these Epstein perps, because as soon as those victims sign with the make a settlement with the Epstein compensation with the Epstein victims compensation fund, they cannot sue anybody. They cannot sue any other perpetrators. Um, and also, I know two esteemed therapists that had uh, clients who, who said that they were molested by. Epstein and his cronies when they were under 10 years old. And 
both of them uh, were denied settlements from that fund. And the therapist, and one of them is a highly esteemed therapist, uh, nationally renowned, said that um, she believed that her client didn't get a settlement because the cover story on Epstein is that none of the girls were under 14 years old. But uh, because these two girls had been 10, 10 years or younger, that's the reason why they felt that they didn't get a, a, a settlement. So that's the corruption that's presently going on with the Epstein cover-up and these attorneys. Is it your opinion, based on your research, that Epstein was a mechanism of the intelligence agencies? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You've got a U.S. attorney being told to stand down. Um, only a president or an attorney general can do that. His house in Florida, his house in um, New York, and also his island was wired for audiovisual blackmail. The CIA or the uh, FBI and Department of Justice got all those DVDs. Um, they definitely um, know who was on those DVDs and, and, and who was compromised. And then you've got these attorneys with intelligence connections, or certainly one, um, with intelligence connections, making sure that this cover-up is sealed hermetically. Um, and, and the Epstein Victims Compensation Fund is, uh, is, a, is a superlative tool to aid and abet the cover-up because those victims that sign and get money from that fund, they cannot sue any other of their perpetrators. I mean, so that fund is doing something that the government couldn't do. It's preventing those victims from suing other perpetrators. In your opinion, what would you consider the odds of Epstein actually having killed himself? You know, I don't like to speculate about that because I think it's kind of a a smokescreen. Um, I mean, there's certainly a lot of anomalies that happened that 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 night um, in that jail. But the issue isn't whether or not he killed himself. Some uh, news organization approached me uh, a couple of months ago and asked me if I wanted to be part of a of a segment that they were putting together. Did Epstein kill himself or not? And I said, no, I don't, I don't want to be part of that. And I said, this is a much more interesting story, these attorneys covering up uh, for intelligence. And they wanted to just regurgitate did, whether or not Epstein killed himself. They didn't want to cut new ground with the, the information that I've just provided you. Yeah. So two final questions for you, because I want to be respectful of your time. What, and I'll lay them both out and you can answer in whatever direction you want to. What can be done? What can anybody do to help these victim these victims of the Epstein organization? That would be the first question. And number two would be, what can people do to continue to force this issue to the top until a cover-up like this at least has the top of it blown off and this information continues to come out? So we've started an organization called EpsteinJustice.com. EpsteinJustice.com. And we have an advisory board of very esteemed therapists that have worked with trafficking victims. We've got an Epstein trafficking victim, and um, and we also have a a, a a very solid staff. And what we're doing is we're not going to let this go. We we want two things. We want these perpetrators 
we want accountability for the perpetrators and we want accountability for the government. We want a truth and reconciliation commission that's going to give us accountability. Um, it's not about the right. It's not about the left. It's about doing what's right. Child trafficking is a heinous crime and our government should not be in the business of covering up child trafficking. And right now the left and the right are so polarized. I think that this Epstein justice is the only issue that can bring the right and the left together. That's something that we can agree on, is that we need accountability for these perpetrators and that we need accountability for the government. The government should not be in the business of covering up child trafficking. That's something that we have to make sure doesn't happen again. And But I also believe that if we drill into Epstein, we will really understand the rot within our government. The congressional approval rating is uh, 17%. So it's very obvious to most Americans that our legislators are not working in our best interests. Um, the bills that they pass are making the rich richer and the poor poorer, causing unbelievable wealth polarization. The con Our constitutional rights are just being trampled upon um, regarding domestic spying. Our legislators are not working in our best interest. And I think that if we drill into this issue, we will come across the cesspool that is causing all the many of the problems in our country. And we will really start to understand why the congressional approval rating is 17 percent and why our legislators are, are not working in our best interest. What final thoughts would you like to leave the listeners with? Well, you don't have to be passive. You can join us at EpsteinJustice.com. And you can help us clean out the government. Um, you can be cynical and say, well, you know, that's just how it's going to go. But do you want your children growing up in this world? I mean, it's only going to get worse um, when this kind of perfidiousness just rots our government. So... We need people to join together, uh, right or left, it doesn't matter. We need people to join together with Epstein Justice, and we really need to affect change. We need to rectify this um, before our government ultimately ends up destroying us. I appreciate your time. I mean, to say that you unpacked a lot, and that I think that that will leave people with, uh, hopefully, a desire to continue to do their research and dive into these things, I think is an understatement. <laughs> It's certainly not a simple concept. It's a very cons uh, um, complex issue, but I really appreciate your take on it and the time that you've already invested into this, the years, you know, decades. It might be a complex this. issue, but the remedy is relatively simple. Yeah. We just, we need accountability for the perpetrators and we need accountability for the government. I mean, it's going to require a lot to get that done, but what we need is is relatively straightforward and simple. I agree. Well, Mr. Brian, thank you for your time. And again, thank you for thank all you. the work you've already put into this. I appreciate it. Have a good one. You too.
Thanks so much for watching Change Agents, an Ironclad original presented by Montana Knife Company. Andy should be back next week with an all-new episode, but we wanted to let you know that if you're interested in learning more about Nick Bryant's work and interested in being able to help the victims of Jeffrey Epstein, you can check out his organization, EpsteinJustice.com.